Good morning. Many years ago, I had the good fortune to hear the South African playwright, Athel Fugard, give a lecture on the theater, on its very origins and essence. In his view, the theater began when the first cave dwellers emerged from their caves, sat around the fire, and somebody said, hey, listen, this is what happened to me. Our stories, it would seem, can shape us, sustain us. They can define us to ourselves and one another. And they will certainly offer us a pathway to connect to one another, to our families, to the larger circle of life. I have a friend, Polly, who's a brilliant woman. She's a professor of world cultures at UCLA. And she was telling me about the Luba people of Central Africa, about whom she is an expert. The Luba will document their stories and histories through intricate beadwork, creating these elaborate artifacts known as lukasas, or sometimes stringing beads in an intentional way into a necklace. Now the reading of the beads, the telling of the stories, the deciphering of their code depends upon who has the standing to do so, who has the authority to perhaps wear the necklace or to even restring the beads. And the meaning of those stories is fluid, changeable over time, depending not only upon the arrangement of the beads and who's doing the telling, but the time and place in which the story is told. Not so different, really, from the way we tell and recount our own stories, using the language of words, changeable over time, depending upon who's doing the telling and the time and place. Still, I'm struck by the creativity of this, the artistry involved in creating an object in the way that a word can never really be. While our stories may sustain us, they can also haunt us. Either way, they also provide the opportunity, maybe even the invitation, to make some spiritual sense of our lives, deciding what it all means. How do our stories intersect with our beliefs about any kind of larger truth or reality? Does God exist? Does life go on beyond this one? Even though the clarity that they offer might be as fleeting and changeable as the arrangement of beads on a necklace. Sometimes our stories might just serve as a kind of guidepost to see us through a particularly challenging time. I have a patient, Norma, in her 70s who's dealing with ovarian cancer, and she told me, Michael, I get a lot of strength from watching the movie of my own life that plays in my head. She draws her strength from the very challenges she herself has faced. By slight contrast, many years ago, I worked for a hospice, and I had a patient, Harold, who was in his mid-80s, and had suffered a quite debilitating stroke. Every week I visited Harold, every week it was the same thing. He'd recount the same five or six stories, the same five or six events from his life, over and over again in rapid fire succession in this closed loop kind of tape, reliving each moment as he told it. And then I met the most beautiful woman in the world and we fell in love and we were so happy and we got married and then she got sick and she died and the Germans, they were shooting at me and they shot my buddy right in front of my face. And so it went for an hour, or forever long, I would sit there. If I tried to interrupt Harold's loop and ask him a question, Harold, how did you meet your wife anyway? He got a little irritated, as if awakened from a trance. What, what was that? He'd answer me, but he would go right back to the comfort of his chant. 80 plus years of life had all been refined and distilled down to five or six stories, five or six beads on his necklace. Who would we be without our stories? As one who loves to collect objects from my travels, 
as a way of remembering them, I love the idea of imbuing an object like that bead with meaning. The object stays the same, but the meaning might change and evolve over time. Years ago, I had a patient, Lourdes, razor thin, in her 70s, wheelchair bound, rectal cancer, tenderly cared for by her son, Enrique, but on this particular day in the infusion clinic, she was very distressed and tearful. She told me the story of how decades earlier, when she left her native Puerto Rico, that her mother had given her a few precious pieces of jewelry to remember her by. Now, Lourdes was also a bit of a pack rat, and she kept all of her belongings, little bags and baggies, strewn on the floor surrounding the recliner where she spent most of her waking hours. Earlier that week, in an attempt to tidy up, Enrique inadvertently threw out the bag with the jewelry in it. Lourdes was beside herself with grief and anger. Michael, I haven't been able to sleep all week. I haven't been able to eat. The nurse just told me I lost five pounds. And if you'd seen her, you'd see she didn't have five pounds to lose. And I'm so angry at Enrique. How could he be so careless? Why is he such a control freak? I invited Lourdes to gently dip into the spiritual waters of forgiveness, which was not a good call on my part, I will admit. So then I invited a reflection on what was the real gift her mother gave her. Was it really only a few pieces of jewelry? Or was it her undying love and affection as symbolized by that jewelry? And that's a gift that can't be lost or misplaced or thrown away. In a similar kind of way, it seemed Lourdes had the gift of precious little time left on the planet. Would she spend the gift of that time stewing in her anger at Enrique, or would she spend it enjoying his love? She might just spend it stewing, and that would be her choice. I sometimes think the very last power we have is the power to assign meaning to our stories. As my friend Polly explains, the one who tells the story is the one who has the standing to tell the story. So I would ask you, who has the standing to tell your own story, to own it, if you will? Do we alone own it? Or do we sometimes give that power away to the opinion and interpretation of others? Do we sometimes give it away to the values of the larger culture? As one who looks almost daily at the theme of success in life, both in my own life and certainly in the lives of the patients I walk beside, I'll tell you that is one challenging bead to interpret unencumbered by the values of the larger culture we've all been force-fed about this is what a successful life looks like. What about ideas about health, healing, wellness? Are we limited to the images we see on magazine covers or ideas that we hear perhaps from the medical establishment? Do you suppose it's possible to inhabit a dying, cancer-ridden body and still claim a sense of wellness, even of healing? I believe so because I've seen it. But what about the reverse? Anna, a beautiful young woman, early 30s, cured of Hodgkin's lymphoma, given the all clear by her doctor, go live your life, be well. But she was paralyzed with grief and regret and fear, grieving so terribly the lost innocence of a limitless future because she now knew in no uncertain terms that any good thing could be snatched away in the blink of an eye. What's more, she felt like damaged goods. Michael, no man will ever love me now. 
her reading and interpretation of that cancer bead is very different, I would suggest, from how her oncologist would interpret that very same bead. From what I observe, attaching ourselves to any particular meaning and seeing it as fixed can really trip us up. It can intensify our suffering, and I would suggest it can even stunt our spiritual growth, particularly when we add faith to the mix. Doug was a great guy, mid-50s, passionate student of life, ardent spiritual explorer. You might describe his theology best as sort of new age. And for Doug, his core spiritual value was that of forgiveness. Everything came down to that for him. So when he was diagnosed with colon cancer, he was convinced he got cancer because he'd never really forgiven his ex-wife, Tracy. They married when they were quite young, got divorced not long afterward, and though they'd been divorced for years, he confessed, Michael, I've never really let go of my anger at her for her betrayal of me. So this became his spiritual quest, forgiving Tracy. His life depended on it in his eyes. So he got books and did forgiveness exercises until the ultimate test, I'm gonna call Tracy and I'm gonna tell her from the deepest, most sincere place in my heart, I forgive you. Well, I guess Tracy didn't realize she'd been in trouble all these years. She had moved on and was living a different story. But she did tell him that she was glad he was doing well and she wished him well and healing on his way. But when Doug's oncologist told him that his recent scans revealed that his cancer was in complete remission, well, he had all the proof he needed. It was because of forgiveness. He would tell anybody who would listen with the passion of a zealot. That is until the cancer came back. It can be a dangerous and cruel business attaching ourselves to one particular meaning and seeing it as unchanging. In the early 1990s, a big economic recession had hit Los Angeles where I live I was a self-employed designer at the time, and my business fell off to zero. As a stopgap survival strategy, I took this standardized test, the CBEST test, and I got an emergency teaching credential, and I was hired to be a substitute school teacher for Inglewood City Schools, which is a fairly economically depressed, inter, inter, underserved inner city environment. This was a few weeks after the Rodney King uprisings in LA. I was driving past burnt out shopping centers guarded by National Guard troops to go to work. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but soon enough I discovered I did not have the constitution to face those schools every day. And so on my off days I volunteered at Project Angel Food in Los Angeles, which delivered home-cooked meals to homebound people with AIDS. And I got involved with a fledgling volunteer AIDS hospice group called Project Nightlight. But at the time, I felt like the loser of the world. No one could convince me otherwise, firmly attached to that idea. I assiduously avoided friends who might dare to ask the unthinkable question, so what are you doing these days? What's more, I was convinced that God had dispensed all the components necessary to live a successful life to everyone else except me firmly attached to that idea. And yet, when I look back on that point in time now, I see it as the pivot point that made this part of my life possible in this career of chaplaincy that I love so much. 
though it took so many years to materialize. So am I to look back on that time now and call it a blessing? Hurting so badly I wanted to die. Success and failure, sometimes it can be hard to tell which is which. A career or so before that, I was a professional dancer. In 1975, the Broadway musical, A Chorus Line, opened in New York City. I had never wanted anything so badly as to be a part of that production. And that's without even having seen it. That's just listening to the cast album over and over again in my teeny little apartment. Hey, those are my stories too, and I want to be a part of the telling. So in January 1976, Michael Bennett, the director, creator, choreographer of the piece, came out to L.A. to hold open auditions for an L.A. company and for national tours. It was held at the old Aquarius Theater on Sunset. It went on for two days. Every dancer in Los Angeles was there. Everyone who thought they were a dancer was there. Though I was broke, I even went out and bought new dance clothes just for the audition. Hey, it's my big break, right? Well, I danced and sang and danced and sang and danced and sang some more, and I survived cut after cut after cut until toward the end of the second day, with maybe a dozen or so guys left on the stage. Michael Bennett said, okay, guys, we're going to hand out scripts now and ask you to read for parts. Oh, my God, this is it. This could really happen. Um, but just a minute. Um, Michael and Jim, would you step forward, please? And I stepped out of the line, and with that, his co-choreographer, Bob Avian, jumped up on the stage, walked over to me and said, Michael, you sing and dance beautifully. I'm sorry, there's just not a part for you in the show. Thanks for coming. I couldn't breathe. It was like the wind had been kicked right out of me. What, you didn't know that yesterday? I sucked up my tears, I scrambled to get my bag, and I darted out the stage door into the alley where I lost it completely. Jim was a few feet in front of me, in just as bad a shape. Just then, Charlene, who had been assisting Michael with the audition, and with whom I had worked on a few TV specials, she came bolting out the stage door, and she ran up to Jim. A few feet in front of me, put her arm around him to comfort him, and I overheard her offer him another job right there on the spot for an upcoming TV special as some kind of consolation prize. Charlene, what about me? That moment is still so vivid. Fast forward nearly 40 years. Every Saturday, I take a dance class for former professional dancers of, shall we say, a certain age. I call it my old farts dance class. It is heaven on a stick. It is church. It connects me to this real, sacred, essential part of my spirit. It's taught by Walter Painter, an old choreographer who gave me my first professional job in 1973 at the Sacramento Music Circus. And he's assisted sometimes by his wife, Charlene, the one insane from the alley behind the Aquarius Theater in 1976. I love Charlene to pieces. It's never occurred to me to tell her my memory of that day. What's the point? It's ancient history. A couple of summers ago, I got a terrible summer cold. I was up all night, coughing so violently that I bled. I ruptured a vocal cord. Couldn't utter a sound, even if I wanted to. I think my husband, Scott, was kind of happy about that, actually. The, the cold got better, but I still had no voice, so I went to dance class. And it just so happens that the national company of the Broadway revival of a chorus line was in town playing at the Pantages Theater in Hollywood. 
Some of the gals in my class had been in that original production. One had even starred in the London production. So I got to class a little early and some of the women are stretching and they're chatting and we're waiting for the ballet class to wrap it up in the studio before us. One of the women had been to see the show at the Pantages the night before and so she was offering her critique and then sharing her reminiscences on the line in the show and then others would chime in, oh yeah, I remember when Michael called me and asked me to go to London for the show. And inside I was just dying and I couldn't talk. I could only listen. But it was as if a 40-year-old scab had been ripped right off. And just then, Charlene chimed in with, oh yeah, I remember Michael called me and asked me to help him with the auditions out here in LA. And I told him, but Michael, I haven't even seen the show yet. And he said, Charlene, the audition is the show. You're telling me. I so desperately wanted to say something, to say this is my memory of that day. I was there too, not because I needed to beat Charlene up, but because I needed to claim my own story, claim my own voice. And in an instant, I had this awakening to the perfection of this moment, that I couldn't talk, that I could only listen. Because you know what? It's my story. It's not anybody else's story. It's certainly not Charlene's story. While it might be a significant bead on my necklace, it's not even a little filler bead on hers. It only matters to the degree that I've assigned it meaning on my journey. And what if in the end it doesn't mean anything at all? Yes, we might all use our stories to inspire us or fascinate us or explain us to ourselves or one another, or in this case, perhaps to anchor me into a deep place of compassion and humility for those wounds, perhaps, that never really heal. But it would be our folly, I think, to attach ourselves to any particular meaning and seeing it as fixed. Five years ago, I attended my 40th high school reunion, Long Beach Wilson High School, class of 1972. There aren't too many settings that are more ripe for the telling of stories in a high school reunion. And I've found, if we keep our hearts and eyes open, any greater opportunity to reinterpret those stories, to loosen our grip on their meaning. I've attended each reunion in 10-year increments, and each one seems to have its own flavor and personality. At the 10-year, it seemed everybody kind of wanted to show off and prove how successful they become. By this stage in life, most have been humbled by life and loss a bit. I always experience them as a compressed kind of time warp. I'm 14 and I'm 57 in the same instant and I see everybody else through the same eyes. I look right past all the wrinkles and the missing hair and the extra pounds and I still see the handsome football player and the perky cheerleader and the bully and the one who made me laugh so hard in ninth grade English. Of course, everyone's memory doesn't serve them quite so well. I remember Randy Tishower came up to me and said, yeah, Mike, I remember you always walking around in your letterman's jacket. Uh, no, Randy, that would not have been me. Just then, Gary Wilson, who'd known me since third grade and knew me for the sissy that I was, chimed in with, oh, trust me on this, Randy, Mike never would have had a letter in anything. Gee, thanks, Gare. I was Mike then. The highlight of my evening came late. I was desperately looking for an empty table to just sit down and catch my breath from all this overwhelming nostalgia. And I wasn't seated but a few moments 
and up walks Cheryl Young. Hi, Mike, remember me? I did remember Cheryl. I remembered her since junior high, though I'm certain we never had a class together, and I can't recall even having a single conversation with her. But I knew who she was. She had this short mop of curly hair and this wide silk scarf tied around her head. And she had the sweetest smile, but she spoke with a kind of simplicity that made me think a little something else was going on. Well, sure, I remember you, Cheryl. Have a seat. How are you? How's life? Well, I've had some health problems, she said. I had thyroid cancer, and earlier this year I had an AVM. Do you know what that is? Well, yes, I do. It's an arterial venous malformation. I used to work on the neuro floor. And with that, she pulled back her wig to reveal a very nasty scar across her skull. I'm so sorry to hear that, Cheryl. I asked to hear a bit more about her story, and in an instant I had this awareness that I have no need whatsoever to hear even a bit more of her story. And what's more, I have no need at all to share even a tidbit of mine. I only felt this urgent need to say, Cheryl, I'm so glad you're here. Meaning at the party, of course, but more importantly here in life, can I give you a hug? Oh, yes, please, she said. And when I hugged her, I had this overwhelming sensation that if there is such a place as heaven, this must be what it's like. Our stories just don't matter anymore. They just fall away. They're only the circuitous path that brings us up to this point in time where we can meet, we can hug, and we can say, I'm glad you're here. Four years ago, Glenn Johnston, a most beloved member of my family, my mom's partner for the last 15 years of his life, the love of her life that she waited 70 years to find, he took his own life. Approaching 90, in failing health, resolute that he would not die in a nursing home or a hospital and he would not be a burden to anyone else, he chose to write the ending to his own story. And he left my mom a note, three words on a corner scrap of yellow lined paper. I love you. He left the note on the unfinished jigsaw puzzle he had been working on the night before. 90 years of life, and it all boiled down to three words on a corner scrap of yellow lined paper. I love you. That is one bead. It seems we turn over and over again in our hand, trying to understand it, the weight of it, the facets of it, the colors of it. It's so precious. We don't want to lose that one. We want more. We might spend our whole lives stringing and restringing our beads, trying to make sense of our stories, and it might all come down to that one bead. Maybe our stories really do matter. Maybe they're everything, in fact, that make us who we are. And maybe they're just stories. As for myself, I will just say, I'm glad you're here. So be it.